It's one of Roald Dahl's best loved books. And since its release in 1964, it has been adapted into two successful films. Most recent version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory sees Johnny Depp playing the excitable, eccentric Willy Wonka. But along with a rather strange bunch of uh, Oompa Loompas, the real starlets of the show are unquestionably the children. The five fortunates who, if you recall the story, discover gold tickets in their chocolate bar wrappings, thus gaining entry into this mysterious factory and its wonderful world. Of course, the children in true film caricature are something of a contrast in styles. On the one hand, you have four somewhat different and yet similarly selfish children. So that one by one we watch as their ingratitude leads to their downfall and their premature exit from the premises. Well, on the other hand, we have young Charlie. Coming from a humble background, and perhaps because of that, truly appreciative of all that he gets. And therefore the film serves as a sort of modern parable. The lesson being that gratitude is desirable and ingratitude is ill-advised. And yet, well, we might agree with that sentiment. We know that in the real world where we live, the art of thankfulness is a tricky art to master. Perhaps we recall as young children having to be taught to say thank you. And we said it, whether we felt it or not. And even as adults, we certainly are quick to discover that we live in a rather thankless society and thankless culture. Nevertheless, for that very reason, genuine thankfulness is a most distinctive feature. An attitude of gratitude marks out the humble few from the unappreciative many. And it should mark out those who would claim to be Christians. Those this morning who would say that they were followers of Christ. Why, more than anyone, Christians have reason to be thankful. And so in this Harvest Sunday, as we reflect on receiving so much, I simply want us to ask the question, am I, are you thankful? Do we really give thanks to God with a grateful heart? And is my appreciation therefore evident in the way that I live my life each day? Or if truth were told, are we rather more like the first four children in Roald Dahl's story? Well, as we think that through, let's turn to the Bible, the Word of God, and to the letter of Ephesians. And to chapter 5 of that letter, where we find some identifiers or some traits of a thankful life. It's page 1176, if you're using the Pew Bibles. Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 11. 
before we read, I remind you again, as I remind myself, this is the word of God. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Amen. It's a reality in any relationship that over a period of time, familiarity can breed contempt, or at the very least, complacency. And this certainly doesn't bypass the Christian, who over time can drift away from a heartfelt, deep and joyful experience and relationship with God, to a a position of merely attending church and expressing empty platitudes. And if we've ever sat with such a Christian in the early hours of the morning, as they've confessed their spiritual hollowness, you'll know what it is to wonder, could I have spotted the slide sooner? Could I have helped more? And moreover, in the back of your mind, how might I prevent such a thing happening to me? Well, in this passage, I think Paul has something very helpful to say in this regard. For Paul gives us some marks of a thankful life which are nothing to do with simply attending church on a Sunday or trotting out the correct expressions. For you see, he describes some distinctive traits that will be seen in our everyday lives or should be seen if we're Christians and we have a thankful heart. Now, the first of these we find in verses 1 and 2 where we discover that a thankful Christian is necessarily one who is reflecting God's devotion. For Paul says, verse 1, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Imitate God, says Paul, in the way you live and in the way you love. Now we notice that the apostle asked the Ephesians to do this within a particular framework, within a particular context. He doesn't just simply say, imitate God. 
He says, imitate God within your family context where you find yourself. Imitate the Father as dearly loved children. Of course, it's the most natural thing in all the world, isn't it? For children to imitate and mimic their parents. If you're a parent, you've probably discovered or had the disconcerting experience of finding your child mimicking your expressions, your mannerisms, and without fail, it's always your bad ones. Or at the other end of the scale, you find yourself saying things the way your parents said them, and you promise that it would never happen, but now you inwardly cringe, that was just like dad, or I sounded just like my mother. Yet it's unavoidable and normal to pick up certain traits from our parents. And this is precisely Paul's point. For if a Christian is a child of God, they should reflect God in certain characteristics. Now we notice that Paul is very particular about the point of similarity. Again, he doesn't just say mirror God in each and every possible respect. For instance, nowhere in the Bible are God's people commanded to copy him in his act of creating the universe from nothing and sustaining it day by day. Neither are they called to devise a plan of salvation and work it out. Neither are they called to imitate God in his future fashioning of a new heavens and a new earth. No, there are many things that Father does that his children will never do nor ever could do. Nevertheless, with respect to the love of God, Christians are called to be imitators, to live a life of love because we pattern ourselves after our Father. And you know, when we apply this, it brings a whole new spin, a whole new incentive to why we give, why we express charity, love and devotion. You see, children of God who realize the fact Don't simply give to others because it seems the nice thing to do or the right thing to do. They don't give simply because they've been cajoled by a TV advertisement. They give not because of guilt any longer, but because of God. Since their lives are following the example of their Father in heaven. But you can almost imagine at this point someone sitting, reading this, listening to this, and raising an objection. Because someone says, well, this is all good and well to imitate God in love, but how precisely is that feasible? After all, the skeptic says, God is on a rather different playing field from our parents. He's transcendent, invisible. Therefore, how do I imitate a God whom I can hardly fathom? Very good question. And I think Paul anticipates it. Because after commanding the Ephesians to copy God's love, he points them to the visible expression of it where it is clearly seen. And he directs them to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. The express image of who God is and what the Father God is like. And even more specifically, he points them to the death of Christ, putting this imitation not only in a family context, but also in a sacrificial one. You see, Paul says, the kind of love we are to demonstrate in our life is the kind of love Christ demonstrated in his death. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us 
and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And therefore, the kind of love being spoken about here requires real commitment. Our devotion is not meant to be cheap, but costly, like Christ's sacrifice was costly. This isn't love without price tags. It's not the kind of love that's so often talked about today, which is little more than froth. It's loving sacrifice. But it's not sacrifice without a loving center. You see, love is the motivator, the incentive that compels the giver. You remember what Paul said over in 1 Corinthians. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. So I wonder this morning, and I ask you, as I've been asking myself this week, Am I reflecting God's devotion, i.e. the sacrifice of Christ when he died on the cross? When was the last time the compassion of Christ for me moved me out of my comfort zone to love others? When did I last mirror God's devotion in such a way that despite the cost, I loved against the odds? I read some time back a very powerful article by a Christian lady who works in North India. Jubin Varghese is a counsellor who gets alongside HIV patients. Here's what she writes. The day I lose compassion, I would have to give up the job I do. It is an essential ingredient for my work. Attempting to emulate Christ has made me look outside myself. Sometimes it's not easy to love especially when patients come to us not in the best of hygiene. It can be repulsive. Yet we cannot have compassion unless we look through God's eyes. Only then can you extend love. And yet there's an obvious proviso to this, of course. You can't reach out with something that you have not experienced yourself. You can't offer love if you've not first received it. And it may be this morning that you have high ideals about reaching out to others. And yet you cannot express divine compassion because you've never experienced it firsthand. See, you can't imitate Father if you're not already part of the family. But if you're not, there is a way to become a member this morning. And it's through the same sacrifice of Christ Offered up to God, yet offered for you, for your sins, for your rebel ways, and for mine. A sacrifice made so that you would not be a spiritual orphan for all eternity. And you need to come this morning to God with gratitude for what he's done for you. Therefore, entering a life where you reflect his devotion, where that's part and parcel of the thankful life that you lead However, Paul has a second mark of a thankful person. And he has that such a person will also be someone who is consistently and firmly rejecting idolatry's deceitfulness. From verse 3, Paul now turns from self-sacrifice to its very opposite, self-indulgence. And he warns the Ephesians against shifting from divine love to degrading lust. 
Again, slipping from charity to covetousness. And Paul commands them that regardless of society's standards around them, nevertheless, among the Ephesians, there must be no hint of things such as sexual immorality, impurity or greed. Neither obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking. You see, says Paul, these are improper for God's holy people and these are practices which are out of place. And we need to understand, says Paul, that those who live in this manner are not God's children. They are, in fact, idolaters. Now, usually when we think of idolatry, we do so thinking of it in rather plain and straightforward terms. This week, for example, I rather unfortunately came across a website titled Love and Thanks to Water. The basic premise being that we should literally revere H2O because it's such a constituent part of our world's makeup. It's very obvious idolatry. But Paul says, no, this kind of behavior that I've just described is also idolatry. You see, that person who is plagued by sexual misdemeanors has actually made a god out of the body and out of sex. That greedy person treats money or possessions as their god. Indeed, by definition, a sinful person makes an idol out of self. For they turn away from God, choosing to self-govern, and therefore become idolaters. And to be defined as an idolater is not a frivolous situation to be in. For Paul adds, there's grave danger in idolatry. Such a person has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. That is, they have no stake in future glory. While Paul also warns, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such things, the wrath of God comes on the disobedient. I'm not going to pull the wool over your eyes, he says. Persistent idolatry is sending people all around you to destruction, regardless of how much it flatters to deceive. So don't be an idolater. Don't slip back into the pattern of worshipping created things rather than the creator. Don't live that kind of life which is characterized by those for whom sex and money and self are God. Rather, he says, verse 4, thanksgiving. Now, I must confess, initially when I read Paul here, and this contrast, I was pretty mystified as to what contrast he was making. I mean, it's a rather strange thing to put off against each other. Don't be idolatrous, says Paul, rather thanksgiving. Don't talk godless talk, be grateful. Why contrast idolatry with gratitude? Well, I think the, po- the point being made is that ingratitude and idolatry are rather like two sides to a coin. Or if you like, they're like uh, twin brothers or twin sisters. You see, ingratitude is refusing to appreciate something or someone you should appreciate. While idolatry is appreciating something you shouldn't. Probably at the expense of something you should And so it often is that when human beings turn away from God, when they shun him, they tend to simultaneously gravitate towards worshipping lesser things, other idols. 
Think again of those children in the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory film. See, each of the ungrateful children was not only, were not only selfish, but each of them had their own idol, their own thing that they treasure. For example, in the case of Augustus Gloop, his god was his stomach, his food, his pleasure. For Veronica Salt, it's her possessions which are her idol, as all the things her dad buys her take precedence. Well, for Violet Beauregard, the idol is prestige, as she's obsessed with showing off her trophy case and all the awards that she's won. Whereas for Michael TV, who's always showing off how much smarter he is than everyone else, the idol is personal ability and intelligence. And it's no surprise that today we live in a world where these are the same idols that people run after when they flee from God. And Paul says, Christians, don't be like that. Thank the one who deserves to be thanked. Be grateful to your creator, your sustainer, who gives you life and breath each day you live. Appreciate the God who in his great love and mercy gave his son for you to die. Don't be unthankful and reject Christ. Rather, thanksgiving. It's not hard to cross-references to the story of Jesus and the ten lepers. Remember those people with skin conditions whom Jesus healed? Ten of them. And you recall the punchline to the story that only one returned to say thank you. Someone has ironically suggested the reasons why the others didn't come back. One waited to see if the cure was real. One waited to see if it would last. One said he would see Jesus later. One decided that he never had leprosy anyway. One said he would have gotten well anyway. One gave glory to the priests. One said, oh well, Jesus didn't really do anything. One said, any rabbi could have done it. And the ninth said, I was already much improved. Friends, I wonder this morning, what's your excuse? If we've never come on bended knee before the God who's given everything to us. See, it could be this morning that you've never really given thanks to the one who's given everything to you. And you've been living for other things. And this morning, you need to put that right with God. Or it could be that it's been a long time since you've said to God and meant it, I'm grateful. I'm truly thankful for Christ. And I'm going to reflect that in the way that I live. I'm going to stop running after mere shadows and echoes of reality, mere idols. See, thankful Christians not only reject, reflect God's devotion, they consistently reject idolatry's deceitfulness. And because of that, you find them, uh, thirdly and finally, retaining light's distinctiveness. In verses 7 to 11, Paul ties up everything that he's been saying and he hammers home the point that in their behavior, by way of their thankful lives, the Ephesian Christians are to stand out from the crowd. And this is perfectly possible. If they reflect God's devotion, if they reject idolatry, they will be shining lights in a dark, immoral universe. 
And yet Paul says the responsibility here lies in great part with the Ephesians. And therefore he adds, do not be partners with them, verse 7. Well, in verse 8 he adds the reason. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. That is, you are a child of God and you are responsible for retaining your distinctive brightness, your distinguished witness. Now, of course, in the first instance, Paul is not saying that the Ephesians should break off all contact with their non-Christian neighbours. Do not be partners is not a call to retreat from the world. Now, the word he uses, partners, refers to participation and not just association. He's saying, don't share in the evil deeds and practices of those around you. Live among them, but don't live like them. Live as children of light amid darkness. Of course, the greatest example of this was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So often, Jesus was criticized by the religious establishment for associating with those who were regarded as the most sinful. And it was true. Absolutely. Jesus associated with such people. He even ate with them. But it's a crucial distinction that Jesus did not participate in the sinful things that they did. He was a great light amidst great darkness. And therefore, Jesus reminded later his disciples that they too must stand out within society. So we remembered a few weeks ago, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp. And put it under a bowl. Instead they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. You see the light needs to shine. But it has to be on display. Where people can see it. So let me ask you today. A question about your conspicuousness. If you're a Christian. Are you a light on display? Are you like a city on a hill? Or maybe a little bit like Edinburgh Castle or Stirling Castle. You can see where it stands from a distance. Is it obvious to your work colleagues, your neighbours, the people you come into contact with each day, that you are a Christian? Could they tell it from your life alone? Some of you have had the experience of starting a new job in a new workplace. And uh, perhaps you immediately tell them that you're a Christian. And yet over weeks and months, you become convinced that that person, that man, that woman, at the other end of the office, is also a Christian. So after a few weeks, you pluck up the courage and you ask them directly, and they tell you, yes, I am a Christian. Well, how did you know? They never told you. But you see, they were living differently. And you could see that they weren't running after all the idols everyone else was. Their life was free from idolatry and their quality and character of love was different. I wonder if people could tell that about us. Say, there's a Christian. You know, it's a very interesting fact that the early Christians were probably given the name by those who were not Christians. That is, outsiders who saw how central Christ was to them decided that Christian was a good term, follower of Christ. You know, I wonder if those around me 
were going to define me, call me something, what would they call me? Would it be a Christian? Would it be a, a child of light? Or would they think that there was no difference really between I and them, except that I attend church on a Sunday morning? You see, our lives need to display a deeply felt gratitude that distinguishes us in the way that we live. Well, just a few words now in conclusion. And back to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. If you know the story, there's really a great end and conclusion to it. Because the appreciative, thankful little boy, Charlie, is ultimately the one who receives the keys for the factory. Expecting little, yet grateful for what he gets, he ends up receiving so very much. And you see, the owner of the factory, what he was looking for, was the kind of heart that Charlie had. You know, this morning, God is not looking for people of eminent social standing. He's not looking for people of achievement. Or perfection, as if we could ever reach his standards anyway. But God is looking for thankful people. For those who appreciate what Paul called, in another place, the indescribable gift. The epitome of God's grace. The gift of Christ. Yet are we thankful for that this morning? Is there evidence of gratitude in our lives? You know, if not, I wonder then have you ever thankfully received God's gift? Do you need to come and say, Lord, I don't deserve to be, but I want to be, on the basis of what Jesus has done, part of your family? You can come this morning and take up that opportunity. But you know, if we've already done so, then let me ask you another question. Are you reveling in God's generosity? See, maybe you're a Christian, and yet, for years, you've wandered the pastures of ingratitude. And perhaps this morning is a prodigal son or prodigal daughter moment. An opportunity for a cleansed leper, a forgiven sinner, to come back and to say thank you. Let's pray together.